want to say that um, really there's only like 12 Christmas songs ever made and they just keep redoing them with different artists but the worst Christmas song has to be the 12 days of Christmas it absolutely is yeah because you end up with like 160 birds yeah you get like one partridge in one pear tree but you get it all 12 days so you have 12 trees with one partridge in each, 35 golden rings. Yeah, I don't know a single person that eats goose eggs. Apparently there's five of them, and they're laying daily. Yeah, uh, eight, 19, 11, 20, 40 maids of milking. They get, yeah. they get 40 cows. Apparently there's cows involved, yeah. Yeah. I don't know. There's lords leaping all around you. And, uh, I'm down for the lords leaping. I just don't know what to do with all the goose eggs. Uh, well, I mean, you got an apartment, and you're going to have lords and cows and trees. It's going to get really weird. I'm going to need to get a two-bedroom. You're going to get a knock on the door. <laughs> yeah. That's what's going to happen. They're like, it, it may not even be a knock. It just may be that, that sound of the step up and somebody like taping something to your door. Yeah. You've gotten some kind of notice. Yeah. It's probably, if I'm guessing, it's the maids of knocking. Probably. The seven maids of knocking. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, we're back on assault precautions once again. And uh, this week, uh, what we thought we would do is uh, we were going to put together some of these very specific cases that Jody and I have worked on um, for years and all. And the kind of cases that are out of the ordinary, even for us that work psych, where we kind of see it all. But these are some standout cases with like mysterious symptoms or stuff that we had to really drill down on and find some obscure things that were going on. Like these are, these are cases that we worked on that are uh, outstanding to us, you know, bizarre, even for a psych worker. Yeah. And if it wasn't really the onset of a symptom that you thought was bizarre or some pattern that the patient formed, um, I think the discovery of really what happened right is sometimes really really odd and we have some cases i think that are really really interesting and some of them are just symptom sets and some of them are backstories of like mm -hmm. what got these people to the hospital yeah like what exactly who what family member do i need to finally get a hold of on day three or four and go hey what is going on here with this yeah. guy yeah but uh one of the first ones that i want to start out with um i guess it must have been seven years ago or so uh, I had, at the time, a nine-year-old patient, and we're going to call him Mr. Tourette's. And not like television version Tourette's where you just say fuck all the time. Uh, like Tourette's where he has this severe and debilitating tics, and they're embarrassing, and he gets bullied a lot, and he's internalizing it and externalizing it. And, and you know, he winds up at a long-term residential center because... A ticks are a hard thing to deal with. Yeah. I mean, you, you've got to get some neuroleptic medications going on. Uh, it's, it's tough. It's tough to chase around a, a genuine Tourette's. And he had acute ADHD underneath it. And then there was this behavioral component about I can get away with whatever I want to because I have ticks. And you know, it was a real big uh, emotional mess. You know, when I see those patients that, you know, those hard Tourette's patients, it's legit. Because, I mean, you and I both know we have some people that pop in that, that Google it and figure it out and do these little fake, weird uh, tick things and say fuck a lot. And, you know, they have these abnormal movements, but it's it's not it's not clinically Tourette's. It may be some anxiety-driven type of behavior. Yeah, some, some sort of compulsion. Yeah, compulsion or, or a coping mechanism with a social anxiety thing that's going on. Um, but when you see that true Tourette's and what happens just in the course of them personally dealing with it and the social isolation that happens because... Yeah, that's weird. It is weird. You don't want to hang out with this guy. You don't. And it's sad. It is because it's... I mean, they're functioning, they're thinking thoughts, they're having emotions, they're doing all these things, but they have this just flinch they just can't manage mm -hmm. and it just presents in the weirdest way sometimes right but they're cognizant i mean and they're they're being shunned sometimes even by their parents i've seen cases like that where it's just it's, I, don't, I don't know what to do here guys yeah it's yeah. hard it's so hard 
So our guy, uh, aside from having uh, the typical severe ADHD, like asking for PRN so he could get his legs to stop moving, so he could get a good night's sleep, because I know that we have this social stigma about uh, uh, Tourette syndrome, and like what they need is a belt. Like, no, and I'm kind of obligated to report you to CPS <laughs> for suggesting such a thing, because. Yeah. Uh, if you're using corporal punishment on your kids, I'm not supporting that kind of bullshit. Yeah, I, you know, I can't imagine an atmosphere, especially to, in today's social environment, right? Where there's so many alternatives and there's so many things that you can do positive for for kids to really reach out. And, and generally, when you're having those type of behavioral issues, you can almost always track it back to a relationship problem. Yeah, there's a there's this family dynamic issue that's happening and if it's not you mom start talking to your neighbors start talking to the siblings start something talking to the, yeah, teachers there's, there's something wrong somewhere yeah so our mr tourette's guy had a very severe set of tourette's symptoms and the the biggest one that was the most notable is that when he was standing and in motion Let's say we're in line walking to the cafeteria or something like that. He had to hop like a bunny and then also would hop and spin. So it didn't take us very, very many days for us to figure out that he belonged at the back of the line because he couldn't be in the center line because it took him so long to get from A to B. He would just hop and spin and then he also had this verbal tick where he would say, fuck you, but to you. And he didn't mean it this way. So I don't, I lost track of how many times I would ask him how his day was and he'd go, fuck you, Mr. Isaac. But he wasn't upset. Yeah. It's just a thing that came out of his mouth. Probably before you could even imagine how he was going to respond to you. Right. It just came out yeah. like Tourette's. They're just things that you can't control. And, um, an interesting thing that uh, he had is he, he had this very strange tick where um, the best I can describe it is that he was into testing the tensile strength of everything. It's like you ha you put something in his hands, he has to test the ten tensile strength of it. Like try to bend it, try to pull it apart. Something, yeah. yeah so that made mealtime a fucking disaster. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you're, you're guaranteed that your very first tray of food that you yeah. would give to him would be on the floor. Spaghetti because, night's not going well. Yeah, because you give him his plate of spaghetti and he immediately sees whether or not the plate will break. And I never once believed that he was doing it just to be a disruptive shit and put spaghetti all over the place. He was just what his brain said. His brain was like, test the tensile strength understand where this thing will bend and where it'll break. Uh, anytime you gave him a pencil for a school environment, what happened to the pencil? Broken. Every time. Uh, every piece of paper that you would give him, he'd be willing to do his schoolwork. And like, I'm ready for my worksheet, or I'm ready for my second worksheet. I finished my other one early. He's a good mathematician. Uh, but you hand him that piece of paper, what happens to the piece of paper? It's in two pieces. At it's least. A two, at least two with a standard deviation of eight. You think, though, once we've shredded those first, I don't know, a few hundred sheets of paper, you're like, I bet this one's like that other one. Yeah, probably. No, it's not. Not that. to him, because yeah. it, it was like this, like he didn't have the, like we, we as human beings have parts of the brain that have these evolutionary behaviors and warning signs that like, you don't go near the edge of the cliff because that's a long way down. Or you don't try and break a rock with your fist because what's the point? We've been learning for generations and generations that you can't break a rock with your fist. Unless, of course, you're in some kind of competition where that's the you know, name of the game. Or if you're Jackie Chan. Or if you're Jackie Chan fighting people with ladders and all that stuff and Chris Rock and himself save the day uh, before... I imagine Jackie Chan locked Chris Rock into the shadow realm. <laughs> right. Excuse me. That wasn't a Chris Rock. That was Chris Tucker. Wasn't it? It was it's some, some relevant Chris. Uh, there was a relevant Chris. Yeah. Um, 
I, I do remember uh, I had a teacher um, that was working with uh, Mr. Tourette's, and she was she was exhausted. She had gone past her therapeutic limit. And, you know, I don't believe that she crossed any ethical lines or anything, but she handed him his notebook paper, and he picked it up, and he tore it straight in half down the middle. And he goes, out of frustration, it ripped. And the teacher goes, it ripped or you ripped it? It's like... like Here's a, here's a kid that needs some Tyvek worksheets. Yeah. That would have been or super beneficial. Laminates. All, all, all the way around, laminates. Maybe or, just laminate all Or just like a stone and a chisel. <laughs> Something <laughs> like that. Dry erase board for you, sir. And, you know, and, and, I, and I was talking about the details of this case with somebody else uh, outside of work. You know, I wasn't giving any names or anything. Uh, and I remember that person's response was, well, I hope you get it under control now, because imagine the compulsion to test the tensile strength uh, into oncoming traffic when you're old enough to drive. Yeah. What's the tensile strength of the hood of my car if I pull into oncoming traffic across the yellow line? Like, you guys better hurry up and get this in control, because this is what's going to start happening. He's going to accidentally kill himself in a car accident. Because he's still just got this obsessive compulsion of tensile strength. It was very weird. It was like a tactile tick. Yeah. It was, it was super cool. And you know what we ended up treating him with? Right. It was a, a an old school obsessive compulsive disorder and Tourette's disorder medication called ORAP. Huh. And those nurses out there, the the old schoolers that have been doing this for a long time, y'all know about ORAP. It's it's as old as Clozaril. Or something like that. It's it's very very old school. Or like or like valproic acid, Depakote, Depakote you know, yeah. old school medication, lithium, you know. ORAP is in that medication group, and it's uh, it, it was probably the most effective thing that we had on him. We had him being able to you know sit still, tie his shoes without tying them too tight or, or uh, tying his uh, Batman mask so hard on his head on Halloween on the unit that he just has a psychedelic freak out because he's trying to rip himself out of this Batman suit because he's taking, taking the tactile strength route on it. So there's this guy stripping down naked, ripping apart a Batman suit. It was pretty surreal. In his defense, that Batman costume looks pretty tight. It does, like a, like the Michael Keaton costume. All of them. Yeah. If it was like the, just that leather and rubber, what's your what's your favorite Batman actor? Oh my god, are we gonna do this? Yeah, we're gonna do it. So, Christian Bale. I mean, get the question. fuck out of my face, well, Jody. So your Michael Keaton Batman all is, time does not hold up. It it does it he, does because the person he had like eight lines of dialogue in two movies. Yes, just listen. <laughs> just you can pull out of this at any time, uh, and I get that you you seem, you know, you're loving the Michael Keaton Batman. I'm it's, telling you, it's not a thing. It's a thing. <sighs> yeah, it's it's a thing. I voted for Oswald Cobblepot in this last election, Chris, and, and I haven't seen the new the new Robert Pattinson. Um, I don't think movie. it's out yet. Yeah, it's not. The trailer looks very intriguing. I'll take it. I'll uh, watch them all. Sure, I'm gonna watch it. I, I love Batman, but yeah. to date. Christian Bale. No question. Think so? No question. And I don't know if it's the Heath Ledger Joker that made uh, the Christian Bale Batman's just fucking unforgettable. Oh, God. And Tom Hardy is Bane. It's, come on. I mean, What really? a character. But, and, and dude, I love Tim Burton. I mean, I get it. But Michael Keaton, I, even if you told me before, like, hey, you need to begin to cope with this because Michael Keaton's going to be Batman. I'm like, that's, that's not a thing. It's... Look, I've got like a whole sleeve and a chest piece of <laughs> tattoos dedicated to the work of Tim Burton. Yeah. But I got to tell you, Tim Burton ruined Michael Keaton's career. He may have. Because he was in like, he did some dark comedies. He did uh, the Dream Team. Yeah. He did, uh, what was the one where him and his girlfriend were drug addicts? Clean and sober. Has Michael Keaton even worked since he was Batman? He did like multiplicity like 14 years later. Yeah. And then it there was took like that long for that Batman thing to wear off. Yeah. And then there was like <laughs> another 10 year gap 
and he was the bad guy in a Spider-Man Marvel movie. Uh, okay, I do remember. He that. was the the Falcon or something like yeah. that. Uh, I don't know. I it just you know once somebody makes you Beetlejuice and makes you Bruce Wayne, that's just kind of who you are forever. So you don't want to take this opportunity to recant. You're good. You're gonna hold the Michael Keaton I'll Batman. D- I'll die on this hill. Okay. All right. That's fine. So what story you got for us, Jody? What do you got? So I had a case probably, I don't know, six or eight months ago. Mm-hmm. The girl comes in. She's a little despondent. She was a suicide attempt. Obviously had some issues. No drug use. Um, but definitely preoccupied. Definitely not wanting to be with us. Um, very withdrawn and isolative. But I could approach her, and uh, I did her assessment, did her uh, admission, and was able to form some type of a rapport with her. And uh, I guess maybe first afternoon after that, second day maybe, she reports feeling kind of faint and lightheaded, and she's sitting over in the chair, and she's kind of sleeping, and we're thinking, well, you know, given the nature of her case and where she's been, maybe she's just tired. But, you know, all of your EMT friends will tell you that when they pull up on a case of someone that's passed out or non-responsive, they'll give two things. Because neither one of them can kill you, and both of them could save you. One is, right. one is Narcan, mm-hmm. and one is glucose. So we're talking about either an overdose, an opiate overdose, which is common in our area, or somebody's just in a hypoglycemic coma or approaching it. Right. So, of course, we, you know, wheel the Dynamap out. We get a set of vitals on her. We get the um, glucose monitor out and check her blood sugar, and she's like 40. Not good. No, no diabetic history at all. So we're like, you know, what's going on with this girl? And she kind of does this weird seizure thing, and for a couple of days, you know, we, we get her some juice. I'm, at this point, giving her juice with sugars in it. They weren't particularly... Tonic, clonic, or grand malls. No, they never they, were. They were no. just these absence kind of things. And well, you know, the thing about her seizures, and you know, you have certain staff that will approach those situations, and we, I mean, you see it all the time of people that, you know, they'll, they'll fake their seizure complex. They'll yeah. come in, it'll look one way, but they don't want to get the sternal rub. They're responding hard to it. They're obviously not experiencing a seizure. Now, whatever that thing is, whether it's, you know, they're wanting the Ativan, two megs, or whatever that thing is. We're not going to give it because it's not seizure activity. Right. This girl would look like seizure activity. Her eyes would roll back. She'd become non-responsive. We'd, she'd pass out. She'd go to the floor. But I could always get her, and I could put my fingers in her hand, and I could rub her shoulder and go, hey, talk to me, and all you have to do is squeeze. And I don't always could just squeeze my fingers. So she was responsive. Didn't have to sternal rubber or anything like that. But you take her blood sugar, I mean, right after she ate, in some cases, she'd be like 35, 40. I mean, approaching coma status, I mean, horrible. And you've got her in the day room with a funnel, just putting orange juice down her and cookies. I would wake her up after the first few days. I was waking her up with juice. And I was literally putting like four or five packets of sugar in this. Like, look, you need to drink this. Never really had her pop out of range, which you'd think just the average person drinking three or four boxes of that by 10 a.m. is going to yeah. spike a little. Like, you know, even if I'm not, you know, a thing, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be high. See, I was, during that week, I, I was working at the same hospital as Jody, and uh, I recall hearing what we call the code purple, which was a, a non-CPR medical emergency. So that's what we call for falls or seizures or something like that. And I ran multiple of these codes, uh, you know, I was one of the leadership on the, on the campus and, you know, I, I ran over there and I remember asking Jody, are you red or blue on this? Now, neither one of us established which one was red or blue. <laughs> we just kind of knew which one was which. And he said blue and that the way he looked at me and shook his head and he was thinking, this is a, you know, neurogenic, you know, not, not a real seizure. Well, you know, the girl had claimed seizures. She's like, hey, I have seizures and this is seizure activity. And, you know, I've done this before and I have seizures, seizure this, seizure that. But when you see it and it unfolds and she's, you know, on the floor and she's doing a little bit of the shaking, 
But again, throughout the entire episode, she's responsive. Right. It's, it's not. It's not seizure activity. It's not. To us. Yeah. To I mean, to to a clinician that's looking at it, and a doctor that comes out and you know he's seeing me, and she's squeezing my hand, and she's talking. She doesn't look that good. She looks. She looks bad. Mm-hmm. She is. I mean, I don't know if really she could do any better than she was doing when she was lying on the floor at the time that we were having this entire intervention. I mean, you check her blood sugar after four boxes of orange juice with maybe 20 sugars in it, and she's 40 again. You're like, dude, 45 minutes ago, an hour ago, I checked you, you were 110. Yeah. 110. And I mean, I was on Q2 checks with her. I'm like, look, we need to do Q2 blood sugar checks, and as needed, if, if it looks weird, we're just going to check it. I don't know how many times I stuck her finger in that week. It was yeah. many. Her finger was just red, and I was going off different hands, and they were all just stuck all over the place. Because I mean, I, I didn't know, and it, it, you can go into a hypoglycemic coma. It's not pretty. No. And I mean, that's at the time where I'm wearing an ambulance pick you up and take you, and they're putting you on D five IVs, and they're doing a lot of things to try to get you back to some stable. Um, exactly. But. What was weird about that case is, like I say, she would go from 110, 120, 130 to 35 in an hour. Like, what is going on here? It's like, that's not, you can't explain that. Yeah, because when I originally asked you and you said, I'm blue on this, meaning Jody thought that there's just a behavioral component. Uh, I don't think that these are electrical in nature. Uh, and then he said, because, you know, I've talked to mom, there's this really weird family dynamic. There's some borderline traits, which yeah. we'll get to in a couple of episodes. And, uh, uh, I was like, okay, I, I I'm going to take Jody's word for it. He's an insightful guy. He knows his patients. He knows his shit. And then, and then it happened again. We got a couple more codes with her the next day. And I said, red or blue on this. And he goes, purple, purple. Yeah, yeah. Because it, it 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 is physiological. There are some things happening, and that activity that's happening is causing this onset of symptoms. Now it looks like a seizure, and we had other nurses going, "She's she's faking those seizures." I'm like, "Oh fuck you!" Yeah, but you know what? I don't think it's a seizure. I I think it's something else. Yeah. And we send her out to the hospital. The hospital pumps her up. You know, gets her in there. Like, well, you know, we don't know. But it was like, listen, when I sent her to you. And I think we recorded, I mean, 30 at one point. And I'm like, I cannot have her on the floor. She's oh, just, just dangerous. We could have a death. Yeah. So we, we call EMS. You know, I fill out all the paperwork. We get the MOT done. I call the ER. I'm like, hey, I'm sending you guys this girl over. Here's the thing. And I can't explain it. Uh, medical team couldn't explain it. Psychiatry was looking at her. And they were at a couple of the codes even. And they're like, we don't know what's going on with her. I'm like, same. But she can't be here because this is very dangerous for her. And we had her, actually, I guess about day nine, day 10, the drops kind of stopped. She wasn't bottoming out. No? She was never great. See, I don't remember that. I had to go on leave due to an injury. Yeah, I remember that injury. That was difficult to hold. Fun day. <laughs> it wasn't, though. But in, we ended up sending this girl. We transferred her out to another psych hospital that had a little bit more of a medical... Uh, setting and they were right across the street from another sister hospital that they use and I, the same nurse practitioner that we had that was monitoring her with the psychiatrist ended up working at that other hospital as well so I was kind of able to you know kind of keep in touch with the case a little bit and the drop stopped her blood glucose ended up stabilizing which out of nowhere with no intervention so I still to this day cannot explain that case. I have no idea what was happening. Something was, and basically we, I don't know that we coined this term. This term may exist out there in some obscure, uh, but we said, oh, this patient is experiencing neurohypoglycemic seizures. Yep. That may not be a thing. Here come the emails. Here they come. I can hear them now. But, you know, what else would you call it? I mean, that's a... 100% accurate description because we have an onset of hypoglycemia. We have seizure activity. Now, albeit it's not your classic, I'm going to, you know, fall on the ground and there's going to be some tonic activity, tonic clonic, um, and we can treat that. 
who knows with the blood sugar of 30 if we'd have given the Ativan what would have happened yeah because I mean uh, you know you're, you've got epileptic seizures you've got um, TBI seizures yeah. but but uh, metabolic seizures yeah. that'd be the first time I ever saw that yeah I, I mean I think it was just a weird case and, and I hope that that little girl's doing good she was very sweet she's she's was, a nice guy she really was yeah I mean, there Certainly some family dynamic issues there, which, I mean, we could probably point out as being, you know, root cause of, you know, what, 90% of our patients, there's it, something weird it, going on yeah, somewhere. At least some kind of precipitating family factor. Yeah, the weird thing was her mom was very sweet. She was very sweet. I think together they probably weren't that sweet. Probably not. Yeah, so... What do you got? Well, okay. Well, so I, I've got a few more cases that, that defy what we're normally used to. Because you give me a borderline or you give me a SI with no plan, uh, you know, assault to family violence, you know, whatever. I'm not terribly worried about it. I'm going to call them boring you know, maybe that's insensitive, but you know, I was like, boring. Okay, don't send me. You're not sending me anything wonderful. But this particular case, uh, it began with two sisters, right? And they're uh, from a wealthy, upper class family in Norway. Interesting. Yeah. And they have a very simple disagreement. It was just a verbal misunderstanding. And the results, because of where they were in, in their hierarchy of society in Norway, that disagreement uh, completely destabilized the entire income gap in the entire country and the climate, and it destabilized the ecosystem and the economy and now that I'm saying all that out loud, that's actually just the plot to F Disney's Frozen, and that's not a case. <laughs> I'm sorry. Case. <sighs> really? Yeah. Do you have a case, or should I do another one? Yeah, you go ahead. All right, so in, this ended up being one of my very favorite patients, and uh, it, it has a great beginning. The, the ending's not so well, and I think that you probably know this, this person. She presented in admissions... Um, Happy, funny, super psychotic to the point to where I think we were naked at some point and screaming and laughing and crying and doing all the things pretty simultaneously. Aren't we all? Well, yeah, I'm wearing pants. For now. Yeah, for now. So, and we get her back to the unit and she's pretty agreeable as long as you're agreeable. But as once we begin to enforce the unit policies and, you know, the smoking uh, schedules and all of the things that we do, she's not really game for a lot of those things. And she begins to act out. And this is day one. Um, we have no idea. We've never had this patient before. We don't know the background. She has no psychiatric hospitalization history, no medication history. Uh, but she does blow up positive on UDS for methamphetamine. We're like, well, okay, maybe. Because she's presenting as like a long-term patient. I mean, she's really, she's biting, she's hitting, she's sitting on the floor, she's urinating everywhere. She's doing these things like you would imagine in a very detached psychotic patient that maybe has been around the block. So this goes on for two or three days, several holds, three or four packets, um... On that fourth day, I'm at the nurse's station, and she comes up, and she's saying words and sentences and all of the things that you might imagine that you just might encounter from any person that you'd meet on the street. And I came out of the nurse's station and came out and sat down with her and started talking, and she has no clue of what's happened over the last few days. Jeez. <laughs> And it was really, it was wild. I mean, some of the things that we were involved in and the holds and the behavior and the violence. And, you know, I'm, I begin to unfold on, well, you know, you came in here. Here's the hospital that transferred you. Here was their kind of leading diagnosis. You were given medications and restraints in the hospital. You came here. You got a little bit of the same. You know, there's some biting and kicking and hitting and urinating and, and nakedness and all of the things that you might imagine. And the works. Yes. <laughs> she, she got the loaded fries. <laughs> but and she was horrified. You know, she couldn't believe it. And you know, here she is now, pretty clear, and she's looking around at some of the other patients because, of course, you know, we're on the acute unit. 
And she is distant from the other behavior that she's seeing. She just can't imagine. She's sort of frightened by the other patients on the year. And I'm like, hey, you know, well, yesterday they were frightened of you. Uh, but she's clear. She's like, well, I said, I can't believe that happened. And I, I apologize. And I did what? And what are the things? And you gave me what medications? And what happened? And we're going through the whole thing. She ended up discharging a couple of days later. Um, clear, signed all of her paperwork. Um, she had a little bit of a support system at home, husband. Um, and I remember telling her, you know, on that day out as we're going through all the paperwork, I'm like, listen, you are a methamphetamine user, and I discovered this on your UDS, and you're not good at it. And some people, I mean, no one's good at doing methamphetamine. So, but, you know, and, and Isaac and I have hinted at this whole neuroleptic, almost allergy that people have to certain chemistry that they introduce. You and I first talked about on a COVID unit. Yeah, mm-hmm. we did. And... Uh, the shoe fits on this patient. I mean, whatever she did, which we know was methamphetamine, but I mean, it's just, it's like a bar mat of that, that drug is made by so many different people in so many different ways with so many different components. Who knows what she was taking and who knows what really ended up being the reaction. If it was the true amphetamine base of that or, or some household cleaner that was involved, who knows? But I remember telling her, I was like, listen, you're not good at this. And the number one thing that you need to do to make sure that you're going to be okay when you leave here is just never do that again. Because I didn't know Please. she was a long-term user. I mean, she told me she wasn't. I was like, listen, this is not for you. Okay, yeah, I understand. And I'm never going to touch that, blah, blah, blah. So I guess two or three months roll by. She comes back in. A little less violent, but way more psychotic. That's how I like them. <laughs> Well, it was sad because the person that I discharged was not this person. And the person that I admitted this time was, you know, I'm less violent, but way more, just way more detached, unkept, dirty, um, UTI, bruises, just a lot of miles in those last two or three months, you know. The thing is, she didn't really clear up this time. We hmm. had her for 14, 15 days. And I remember waiting for this to happen. So I was like, oh, this girl popped last time. She's going to be fine. We, you know, we're going to restart the same meds. The doctor's already put the orders in. She's already gotten her you know, dosages. We're, we're getting up to level. You watch. Here in a few days, she's going to pop out and go, what the hell was I doing? And what did I do this time? Waited and waited. Never happened. Still had the support system at home. What we found out was the husband was a very chronic methamphetamine user. Super. Well, not in her case, because really she didn't have a history of that. And she'd only gotten into it once she had met this guy. And um, it, it just became this chronic usage issue for her. And, you know, we see those patients that come in on a drug-induced psychosis. And I have another case that I'll bring to you here in a moment. But with methamphetamine, it's really rewiring the way that your brain operates and turning synapses around to where it's really seeking itself. And so when you're chronically using that and you know, whether you're smoking it or shooting it or whatever the thing is that you're doing, we certainly see some differences in tolerances in different people, the way that they can um, survive that addiction. And we have certain people that are, you know, are two or three uses in that just cannot manage and end up getting contacted by the police or a loved one or they're just not right and you know in those very few shallow cases you know you certainly hear horror stories but generally we'll we'll be like this girl that popped and i was heartbroken to see that she didn't we did end up discharging her in a little better condition than we found her you know she could at least you know nod and sign her paperwork and do her things and you could have almost a conversation Mm-hmm. But it was not like the same person we discharged. So a little time goes by. She's back in about six or eight weeks this time. And the person we got this time was still worse than we got in the second admission. We started her new meds. We changed her meds. We increased her dosages. We did everything that we could. We ended up discharging this person. You know, and for me, really not much better than she came in. Right. And it was just continuing Matthew's usage. And she just, and I remember that 
very first conversation, I always wonder how I could have had it differently that if I could have done anything that would have maybe just thrown one or two more stumbling blocks in front of her. But really with that home environment, I don't, I don't know that I was winning that. Uh, uh, unfortunately, I think about six weeks ago, we found out that that patient was a positive suicide. She had completed. Yes. And, um, you know, you just hate to see it because it's awful. I saw the patient come in the first time and, you know, I mean, that's what we do. We, we find these people and we take care of them. And it was awesome that she popped out and was this super clear person and with a conscience and was coherent, could understand. But we're talking like within a year's period, went from someone that had a job and a life and, you know, a positive social environment to someone that completely lost everything and ended up losing themselves. It's just horrible. I hate that case. Yeah, that's a tough one. It is a tough one, man. Especially knowing how much you invested in it, and then weeks later we find out on your porch that that's what happened. Yeah. That sucks. It really does, and you hear it from, you know, social workers get those reports, and there's a root cause analysis that comes in, and, you know, certainly they're more critical for the hospital within 30 days, and we were well outside that window, but I just hated it. Just hated it. Yeah. So uh, I've got one that was uh, really cool. It was early in my tenure as a tech working with adults. And we had this male um, late 30s, late late 30s, <laughs> late 40s, early 50s. Uh, he presented with confusion, disorganized speech. He was res- appeared to be responding to internal stimuli. He had very poor impulse control. Uh, really inappropriate, just a lot of redirection going on. But he was in a great mood the whole time he was doing it. See, these are our people. That's that's my boy. So uh, we finally got a hold of the family like three or four days later. Uh, and the family says, no, it's not drugs. No, it's not adult-onset schizophrenia. Uh, about four weeks prior, he went to have a routine appendectomy. And what happened was that due to a fluke, the anesthesiology team accidentally deprived his brain of oxygen, probably for longer than four minutes. Yeah. And now uh, he, at this point, went to sleep, a normal dude, successful dude. He owned his own construction company. He was fine. He was good to go. But then he woke up from that surgery, basically just a impulsive, babbling, horny man-child idiot. You know, super sad. Took days to get that information. And then once we got that information, we're like, oh, hypoxia. Yeah. So you what sign, are we going to do here? You sign all these consents. And everyone does it when they go in for surgery. You have whatever procedure. And I, I doubt that anyone really reads all those things. <clears throat> but we've seen more than one case like that. Where due strictly to, you know, I don't know if I titrated the propofol wrong. I don't know if I kept him out too long. I don't know if he lost too much blood and perfused too poorly during the surgery or Whatever that thing was, but they didn't wake up right. I mean, not not close. And you hold them in the hospital, and I think the nurses and the doctors can go, not the same guy, but sleep. Yeah. You know? And sometimes those cases resolve. I mean, they're like, well, they're weird for three or four days. They end up being restraints because they're, you know, doing whatever they're doing, pulling out their tubes or whatever. But sometimes they'll pop back. Sometimes they don't. And you did put to sleep someone that was on the PTA and was going to work every day and was doing his thing and paying his mortgage. And now he's gone two months later playing with his poop, you know? Yeah. And that's baseline. And he was gone. There was nothing, there was nothing we could do. And we just kind of threw our hands up like hypoxia. This is severe yeah. brain damage. I mean, there's no amount of geodon in the world that's going to no. Yeah, organic brain injury. Victim of circumstance. So here's some trivia for you. How what level of oxygen does the brain have to operate in? Where do things start to go wrong? Uh seventy nine. Dig a hole. <laughs> Dig a hole. I'm just I'm just making up numbers. Hundred percent. 
Really? Yeah, 100% oxygen is really what your brain and your your body will divert blood from other areas to make sure that your brain gets it. So you get mm-hmm. fingers or, you know, restless leg or whatever that thing is, you know. You know, you just have pain because of poor perfusion, blue fingers. Right. Because your brain's like, no, me first. Hypothermia. I, I need this whole thing going on. So in an environment where your brain can't regulate that activity, there's not any... Because your brain's making a million decisions a second without your permission. It doesn't need you to tell it that it's okay to blink or to beat your heart, all those things. Right. And your bare receptors are monitor, changing your blood pressure. I always tell patients, when you get your blood pressure, that's great. Uh, it may change five times in a second, but at least we have a good picture of where you're at. Because mm-hmm. it's always changing, you know, fluid volume levels, you know, atrial contractions, all those things are, are playing a part in blood pressure and what it is to have a blood pressure and what is a good blood pressure. But as far as your brain perfusion, 100%, 100% oxygen, 100% blood flow, it's all got to be right. That's why strokes are so dangerous. Yeah, you know, no and, kidding. And what comes out of a stroke and, you know, they, they get the clot busters in and whatever they can do, but... That case and cases like that where we put one guy to sleep and he wakes up someone else. Oh, this is what happened to him. Yeah, and you know what? It sucks. You signed the consent saying, yeah, I understood this was a threat. Yep, and this I knew is this was the risk. Yeah. You just don't expect it to be the risk to you. No. So another case that I had one time that I found to be uh, particularly interesting is uh, this kid that was like a trust fund baby. You know, he came for money. Uh, he was very rich, and he witnessed a pretty horrific murder of both of his parents. Oh, wow, like Batman? And uh, he, just like for the remainder of his childhood and adolescence, he ruminated and replayed the trauma long enough that he developed a, a sort of malignant sense of narcissism and like an acute God complex. Wow. Um, because he wanted to be judge and jury of all morality. Like his, his life was taken from him by chaos and a lack of control. So that was his, that was his fixation topic was controlling chaos, controlling fear, controlling justice. You know, it was just, he swung far the other way. It was like, no, there's got to be something that can be done about this. It's my job to change those random terrible things that happen. And uh, he went so far to control chaos and fear that he put on a bunch of black leather and dressed like a six-foot bat. God damn it. Can't believe you're doing this. I fucking did Batman. You just did Batman. I did Batman. You never had him as a patient. You never had Batman. Well, no, because he'd get right out of there. God damn it. I mean, what is a, is Batman unless it's a I, narcissistic attempt to control fear? Okay, listen. I'm going to let that slide because it was good. I, I feel like it was you, pretty good. But just to be clear, we never had Batman as patient. You didn't. <laughs> All right, I'm going to do, do one more case. Okay. Because I thought this was really interesting. And I, LSD is... Probably, it's probably super fun. Nice jumping off point. Yeah. <laughs> and we see this a handful of times. I probably had maybe a half dozen patients. This particular case was a 19, 18-year-old male who had gone on spring break. And apparently one of his friends somewhere had found some super connection where they could get just all the LSD they wanted. So what they chose to do for two weeks or so was play Xbox and order Pizza Hut and do acid. Do you remember this kid? I don't, but I believe you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I could never make this case up. So this kid comes in, and he is super paranoid, and he's not going to be compliant with any medications. He's pleasant, and but you start talking to him, and he's super delusional, and he has all these really fixated ideas about his parents and the government and what's going on and you can't stop it. And it was a setup. Does that help you? It was a setup. It was a setup. It was a setup. setup. (laughs) I know about him. So you know this kid. Okay. Oh yeah. So how long did we have him before? And listen, no medications. He was never compliant with a single fucking thing. A week, maybe less. Yeah. It was six or seven days. 
And then finally, he started like saying some things that had been out of his pattern for the first few days because that pattern for the first few days was very regimented. It's a setup. It's a setup. I'm not going to take my medications. You guys are crazy. I'm not the problem. It's y'all. It's this. It's that. Um, and his parents are like, look, he's a good kid. Um, he does well in school. He's on the soccer team. We don't, we don't know what's going on. This is not him. He doesn't have any medications. There's no history, blah, blah, blah. So come to find out from his sister, who had been finally, I guess, entrusted with some information from one of his best friends who became, I guess, nervous about what was going on. It's like, yeah, look, we just did a bunch of acid for two weeks. So we get this information in. We relay it to the psychiatrist, and we start approaching him about that. And, he, you know, he, he starts to cop to him, like, yeah, you know, I did this, and I did that, and there's nothing wrong with it. But on day six or seven, he starts breaking that pattern, starts kind of making a little bit of sense, but he's still, he's still distant. He's still not the kid that he was before spring break. Yeah. Day nine or 10, I mean, knows everything back to himself, talking to his family, apologizing to the doctors, you know, Hey, this and that ends up being very articulate, super smart ends up. It probably wasn't a setup. It was just bad acid or yeah, maybe but good basically. acid, but way too much. I, I don't know. But again, you know, back to that neuroelectric reaction, and we do see this with MDMA and LSD in a way that we don't see it with other medications or drugs, where they will cause sometimes long-term psychotic breaks. Yeah. And some people come back, and we're talking about one use. Like, little Johnny goes to a rave and has one hit of something, and for months, little Johnny is, you know, picking squirrels out of his hair. So it's not all the same for everyone. And certainly for him, I was glad to see that it resolved. And, you know, it took, it took a minute, but he ended up doing really well and came back to us and was the guy that his parents were ready to have back home. Same kid that, that they knew before, um, you know, got his soccer shoes and got back on the field and was doing all the things as far as I understand and never saw him again. But just interesting case. And it ends up being not what you thought. Because we're like, where did this kid bump his head? Or, I mean, what happened here? But it ended up just being LSD. Just plain old LSD. Yeah. No fun. <laughs> I'm sure it was fun. Yeah, well, probably for him. One time I had this uh, girl in her late 30s who uh, was OCD and slightly psychotic. But what she managed to do, and this is super rare, is she managed to give herself water toxicity oh. yeah you can drink so much water that yeah. becomes toxic to you which do, it seems counterintuitive to the layperson but when you drink like your weight or more in water <laughs> what it's going to do is it, it's going to take all of the sodium out of your system yeah. and i and i want to say hold on i wrote down her number it dilutes all of your electrolytes uh, her potassium count was below 130. Uh, yes, it should be. You're, yeah. I think you're talking about sodium there. Sodium is 135 to 145. I said sodium. Oh, okay. Your potassium is 35 to 45. Uh, and it, it, what that is going to do is make the brain cells swell yep. and, uh, you can't really process sensory information. Uh, you're confused. It can look like psychosis, um, but what I have to say about that was that would be the first time I have ever seen a place in, patient placed on water restriction. Yeah. That was new. There are certain medications. I had a guy at uh, one of the state hospitals I worked with, and you, I mean, he would pick up any cup with any fluid and just slam it. You, you have to run him off the water fountain because he would hyperhydrate all the time. Jeez. Yeah, and it, it gets in dangerous. I had a girl recently... And so she was on lithium in the past, and she's like, well, I was on like 900 milligrams, but I never could get to serum level because I was talking to her about maintenance and how do you manage that, and you know, you know, you have to have blood tests and serum levels. She's like, yeah, I was taking 900. I was never in the, the window. Come to find out, <clears throat> what do you think her rule was for water intake? And she swore by this. She's like, no, I heard this from a doctor. I don't know. I need to drink one ounce per body weight pound. That's not science that's not a thing no i explained to her and i was like did you ever talk to your doctor or psychiatrist about this thing that you had where she's like because for three or four years i was drinking and ends up being well over 200 ounces of water a day because she yeah. thought that was the thing you want to keep my her skin clear and do these things i'm like 
dude, you were washing all your lithium out. Who, who knows how effective this medication could have been if you weren't just diluting it out and peeing it out all day. Wow. Yeah. So carry on with your hyperhydration. It's such such a weird, that's a weird symptom to me. That's what I had on her. We ended up uh, sending her out because we were worried about her health. Yeah. 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 And that's the last I heard of her. Uh, uh, I didn't know what to think. Yeah. You'll get, you'll get some like hydrocephalus. You, I mean, you have a heart attack. You can do all kinds of things with hyperhydration. It's so fun. Just drinking water. Generally, your body will begin to vomit and tell you that you're making a huge mistake. Yeah, your blood pressure is going to go <laughs> yeah. through the roof and everything. Yeah, but I mean, if you continue to do it and continue to disobey and, you know, ignore all the warning signs, which are yeah. seemingly very violent, I don't know how you miss it. So one time we had this guy that believed that he was smuggling stolen pharmaceutical company data in a microchip inside of his brain. I know this guy. I think that was real. I think that was happening. Yeah, I, I wasn't convinced it wasn't. And the data was so damning and detrimental to these big pharma companies, as he kept calling them, that like multiple, multiple bounty hunters had a price on his head. Only his head, because that's where the microchip was. It, it makes sense. Don't really need the rest of this patient. Because they needed to retrieve the controversial data. Uh, and, you know, we started out by just trying to get him med stabilized. And then we started like softly challenging those beliefs and that kind of thing and we and, and and we gave him medication and you know did some cognitive behavioral therapy but uh in therapy drilling down enough what we learned was that the data in his head was actually real and that we had to extract the data with the help of Ice-T's telepathic dolphin. God damn it. And the former lead singer of Black Flag. Why are you doing this so much? Named Henry Rollins. I think half your patients are bullshit today. But that is actually the plot to the 1990s cyberpunk movie God. Johnny Mnemonic. Yeah, okay. Starring Keanu Reeves. Well, you've been very helpful today, Isaac. I, I know, but I do have one last real one. <laughs> Are you suckering me into another bullshit story? This is not a bullshit story. Okay. I wrote down three bullshit stories. Oh, okay. I did Disney. Oh, I did Batman. I did Johnny Mnemonic. Yeah. I don't have any more. Damn it. Okay. So, for real, for real, many years ago, I had a seven-year-old uh, boy with a hamartoma. Do you know what that is? No. Carry it's on. It's a mostly benign brain tumor. Oh, that's not what I was... <laughs> That's not what I was going to think a hammer tumble was. No, you were thinking about hitting somebody in the collarbone with a hammer, and I understand. Yeah, it's fine. Uh, it's mostly benign uh, brain tumor. It was in his right hemisphere, but it totally had a lot of interaction with the limbic system and the frontal lobe and the hypothalamus. It was massive. All of the things that you don't want a foreign body interacting with. Yeah, yeah, it was massive. So it was changing everything for him. It caused like uncontrollable rage and superhuman strength. And this guy's only seven, but he's shaped like a sphere. Yeah. Or like the gym bag full of basketballs. That's kind of, <laughs> that was kind of his shape. Uh, and obviously, goes without saying, it, he had epilepsy. Yeah. Go figure. Yeah. I know you're shocked. Uh, he had an extremely short memory, um, about 15 seconds. He would tell me, Nana and Pop Pop's coming to see me today. I'm like, all right, are you excited? And then two or three seconds would go by. Nana and Pop Pop's coming to see me today. I was like, all right, good for you. Nana and Pop Pop's coming to see me today. What time? I don't want you to miss it. Let me know when we should be up at the front for him. Did you start writing notes? Like, so the next time he started to say it, then you showed him that you're like, Hey, Nana and Papa are coming to see you today. I don't think he could read. He's like fortune teller. Yeah. Oh my God. So he's a witch. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, once this epilepsy got really bad while he was in our care, we had to send him out to get a VNS installed. Yeah. Which was super weird too. On top I would imagine. Of that. Yeah. With that type of growth, I read, uh, he was on a one-to-one -one for months yeah. because he was acutely aggressive and very, very medically compromised. He could have a seizure and stop breathing at any moment. And, uh, it, shit. Like I, I worked his one-to-one -one so long that I just kind of kept him away from the group cause he did better when he was just kind of by himself. 
Uh, I had to sit outside the shower while he showered. Um, he stuck his butt out of the shower and he had Dory from Finding Nemo stuck in his butthole and he showed it to me <laughs> and was laughing about it and I was like, okay, put get your fish out and finish washing off. You know, the things that we have to ignore at work. It's pretty funny. Um, he constantly flashed everybody. Super into flashing. Yeah. Uh, and one time he was in front of the day rooms to two in front of the windows to two day rooms and was trying to flash them all, which you as a nurse knows that if one patient flashes all the patients flash parade, it's an incident report for every patient who witnessed the flash and a phone call to the, both the doctor and the kid who got flashed. Yeah. So that was going to be like 28 packets, (laughs) 28 phone calls. Right. And me and my other two techs and my nurse knew that that was about to happen. So instead of letting it happen, we basically closed in on him and made a human chain around him. So with his pants around his ankle, nobody could see anything. Perfect. And I, and I remember one of my other tech going, uh, this is an interesting intervention. So you guys just group hugged him. Yeah, pretty much. Kind of from a distance. No, no, it wasn't a distance. We we were we were right up in the middle of it. Yeah, just to keep him from showing his business to everyone else. Um, he. Let's see. Uh, the the medicines that we ended up treating him with, because he had so many problems. Uh, we treated him with clonidine, obviously. You want to get us some clonidine for that. We did trileptol for the seizures and the mood instability. Uh, we did methylphenidate, which, you know, I'm on the fence about, especially when you're seven and cognitively three. But the, the coolest one that we put him on was amantadine, which is a Parkinson's and flu drug and... So we put him on all of that and we got him, I won't say that we got him fixed. So what I'm going to say is like in, in any, uh, master treatment plan, we got him back to his highest level of functioning. There you go. Yeah. I wouldn't say he was better, but highest level of functioning. So we appreciate you guys for listening and we're in this episode the way that we always do. And that is if you're approaching a point in your life where you're considering making what may be a very permanent poor decision, there's a number that we want you to call. It's the National Suicide Hotline. You can get a hold of those guys at 1-800-273-8255. They'll pick up from the very first ring and listen to everything you have to say. They're great folks over there. They do care. And it doesn't cost you anything. It's it's free. It's easy. They're you can pay me if you want. but Don't, don't pay Isaac anything. Okay. All of his bullshit stories today. That's true. But do call out and just, just make a connection with somebody. They are great folks. They do this. They've been doing it for a long time. And, I mean, who knows what the number of people is that, that they've put a, enough of a roadblock in where they didn't make a bad decision today. But another really interesting outlet that we found this week, just almost by accident, there's also a text line for you guys that don't really want to just reach out and have a phone-to-phone conversation. We know a lot of people don't really make phone calls anymore. It's really awkward. Yeah, you know, in that environment, whatever works, works for you. But there's a text line that's available, and it's a crisis text line. It's 741-741. It's available nationally, even if you're in California. (laughs) (laughs) But, yeah, reach out to those guys. And, again, you know, they're they're very responsive, and they want to hear your story. And, you know, if, if you're getting close to making that decision and you have any question at all and you're wondering what's the next step, Use this one. Again, Suicide Hotline is 1-800-273-8255 or the Crisis Sex Line, 741-741. Isaac? Have some Bing Crosby. Damn it. And so I'm offering this simple phrase to kids from 1 to 92. Although it's been said many times, 
many ways. Merry Christmas to you.